Well, it's good to be with you. I um, Originally, when I talked to Malcolm, I was going to share a little bit about, um, I had gone to Cuba earlier this year in February for a couple of weeks, and then other things the Lord's been doing, but uh, then Calvin Fritchie called me and um, asked me if I would come on Sunday night and share um, the, at the missionary meetings there. So uh, plans have changed. I was talking to Aaron. He said, just be better probably to wait till Sunday night to, to show. I got just a few, uh, a dozen or so little pictures of Cuba and then tell more about the work there. So I'll, if it's okay with you, I'll just wait till then. And... Um, I understand I'll be with Nathan Bramson right that night. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I've known Nathan since he was three years old, so, you know, I can also let it go there. Anyway, um, and so uh, let's just share a little bit in the Word. Um, Hebrews chapter 10, and I just want to read verses 19 through 20 through 25. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. It says, having therefore, brethren, boldness, turn into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which is consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more you see the day drawing or see the day approaching let's just pray again our father and our god in heaven we um, we admit before you tonight that it is absolutely impossible for us in our own abilities and intelligence to understand your word. We can we can read the words and we can understand the, the words themselves, but we don't understand what you're trying to communicate apart from your spirit that indwells us. And we thank you so much that he, the author of this book, is the only one that can and the only one that will explain these things to our hearts. And Lord, I thank you that your word is living and that it's powerful and that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and able to abide us under the, the soul and spirit and to reveal not only the thoughts of our hearts but the intentions behind those thoughts. And I pray that we do a great work tonight. Father, we're all different. We're all different in our backgrounds. We're all different in our levels of understanding of the Scriptures, our level of maturity, even our level of, of obedience to the Scriptures. But it's so wonderful tonight that from the youngest of us, the youngest child, all the way up to the most... A mature uh, brother among us will uh, be able to hear the voice of the Spirit and learn if we have our hearts open and receptive to, for him to speak to us. Do a great work tonight, Father. Uh, don't let your word return to you void, but do what you promised to accomplish the purpose that you have for it in each one of our lives. We pray you do it all uh, because you love your son so very much and because he is so deserving. Do it all for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. We know that um, the, the whole theme behind the book of Hebrews from the beginning to end is the manifestation that, that Jesus Christ is superior. He's, he's better. Um, it starts out right from verse 1 saying, uh, God who in sudden times and in diverse manners spoke in times past unto the 
unto the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken through the Son. So right from verse 1, he tells us that uh, just all the Old Testament prophets, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Elias, Elijah, all the prophets, uh, pale in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they received the word from the Spirit of God. He is the word of God. And so he's better. And he is not only the one who gave us that last word, but he's the very essence of who God is manifested in human form. He's the, uh, Darby puts it, the effulgence of his glory, the outshining of his glory. He's the perfect manifestation of God in every aspect, in his, in his character, in his person, in his attributes, in his work. Uh, and we can know God through him. And he goes on to say, of all the created beings... Those angelic hosts that are there in the presence of God, even now, those that behold His glory. You know, when the Lord Jesus said uh, we should pray that God's will be done on earth as it's done in heaven, <laughs> the angels do the, word, the, the will of God perfectly. They do it immediately. They do it without any grumbling or griping or complaining, without any delay. And so, but yet those angelic beings can pale in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just an angel. That's what some religions would tell us. He's just a glorified angel. He's the, the brother, actual brother of Lucifer, who's the older brother. And we know that's not true. He's not just an angel. He is God himself manifest in the flesh. And he's better than them. Uh, he's better than Moses, that great prophet, that great lawgiver, that great redeemer of Israel. He's better than Abraham, the patriarch. He's better than Aaron, that high priest. He's better than uh, anyone uh, in the Old Testament, all of the, the, the great men, David, and all the rest. Uh, his sacrifice is better than all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Those were just animals that were offered up, and all the blood of bulls and goats could never do anything more than just cover up the sin for a time. But his precious blood, aren't you glad? I, I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the most wonderful verses in all of Scripture is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. <laughs> it just fills my heart every time I think about that verse. It just it cleanses us from all sin. Behold the Lamb of God, John would say, that last of the Old Testament prophets. You know, John was really an Old Testament prophet, right? The New Testament didn't come in until the death of Christ. So really all the Gospels are Old Testament books, really. I mean, in essence, that last and greatest of all the prophets, John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What a wonderful thing. And so his sacrifice is that one and only sacrifice in God's sight that really has any value. And the tabernacle that, that he entered into is not just an earthly tabernacle made with hands, which is just a shadow. As we read at the first part of chapter 10, the law and the sacrifices and the, and the tabernacle are all just shadows of things. When Moses was up in the mountain, we don't know exactly what he saw, but God told him, you make sure you build a tabernacle exactly according to the model that you saw on the mountain. Now, we don't know if he saw some vision, if he saw some actual miniature model of the tabernacle. We don't know exactly what he saw. But what he saw was <clears throat> what God revealed to him, an earthly manifestation of a heavenly truth. And so that's why it's so important that Moses built those things. And, and here, I mean, this is a whole other line of thought, but the church today is that earthly manifestation of a heavenly truth, isn't it? And that's why it's so important as we gather together unto Christ, uh, how we meet, uh, the, the reasons why we meet, and all those other things that are given to us in Scripture. I tell people all the time, I don't believe in assembly principles, not at all. I believe in biblical principles. 
there's a big difference. You know, a lot of simply principles are just things that we've traditions we've added and and uh, I can think of a whole. I'll just tell you one real quick. I was one time when we were in Greenville, South Carolina. We were just new in the assemblies, and we lived away long ways away. We were always the first one. They broke bread in the evenings. We were always the first ones there, even though we lived like an hour away. Yeah, it is. People live the farthest away usually get there the first, you know. So one Sunday night, I just happened to put the the cup on the this side of the table and the loaf on this side of the table, which usually is the other way around. And one of the elders came up to me and just really laid me out afterwards. You know, who do you think you are? The bread goes on the left and the cup goes on the right, you know, when you're looking from your all's way. And I said, really, what does it matter? He said, oh, absolutely. He said, we give thanks for the loaf first and then the cup, and we always go from left to right, so you've got to put it that way. <laughs> okay? Of course, for this brother, the head covering was optional. You know, that was, that was, you could put the head covering on or not. He didn't care. But you got to have the bread on the left-hand side and the right. The, see, see what I'm saying? They're traditions. A lot of the, <clears throat> a lot of things we do, <clears throat> excuse me, are traditions that we've just, just like the Pharisees. You know, we set aside the Word of God for a tradition. So I don't believe in assembly principle. I believe in, in biblical principle. And they're important, aren't they? Uh, God's given them to us. And so we, we say all that because, <clears throat> because the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of greater things, of bigger things. Of of more of, of the of the true reality um, that we're going to live in and see and and experience for all of eternity, and so he's better. He's better in everything. And when he comes to chapter ten, he was able to accomplish what the law and all the sacrifices and all the priesthood and all the things were never able to do, which was really the will of God, and was to make us perfect. Make us perfect. That was God's will, to make us like His Son. And we don't have to wait to heaven to get that way. Uh, we know that in heaven we'll be perfectly, absolutely like the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in First John 3, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. But right now, positionally in Jesus Christ, brethren, we are just as holy and righteous and perfect as Jesus Christ himself before God. Why? Because it says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And so that's the way he sees us, clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, we're accepted in the beloved. Again, just a wonderful, wonderful thought, but I'm so glad we're accepted in the beloved. I, I was telling a couple of years ago, three of our, our children got married. You know, I think I might have said this before. Three of them got married in six months. So I had three weddings and a funeral. And um, the funeral was my bank account died that year. So... Just imagine. Oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate that. So um, I tell everybody when uh, I knew all the people that my that my kids married. Last one, my daughter was Lydia got married. Married a young Indian brother, and great guys, you know, great and loved the Lord, and uh, and I, you know, I loved them. I mean, they were brethren in the Lord. But the day that young fellow married my daughter, I loved him from that day forward, just like I loved my daughter. And the reason is he's one flesh with her. You know, I love him just as much as I love her. He's just as important to me as she is because they're one flesh. And isn't it wonderful to know that God the Father loves you and me just as much as he loves his son? Isn't that wonderful to think? We're accepted in the beloved. We are the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. He's the head. And God loves us just as much as he loves him. And so uh, what a wonderful relationship we have with God. What a wonderful position we have in the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful a hope we have uh, that we're someday soon going to be with him. 
But that's the first part of chapter 10, talking about this. With one sacrifice, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So verse 14 says. And he gets down here to verse 19. <clears throat> this is what I want to really concentrate on. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Jesus. You know, the high priest uh, only entered in twice a year into the Holy of Holies, right? Is that right? Twice a year. Who's, who's, who's in agreement with me he entered in twice a year? Nobody's in, He only entered in one day, but he entered in twice the same day, right? Right? Because he, he went in the first time. He offered up a, a, a bull. He took that blood. He took the, the, the um, I know how to say it in Spanish, incensario, the incense thing, you know, and, and went into the Holy of Holies. And he sprinkled the blood on the uh, the um, mercy seat, the mercy seat, um, and for him and for his sons. Went in the first time and offered up the blood for him and his sons. Then he went out. He was on the Day of Atonement. Offers up another bull for the congregation, for the people, and comes back in again. And again has the the incense there, and he has the blood, and he sprinkles the blood again on the on the um, mercy seat. And it's so important. First of all, the, the, the incense there speaks of the beauty and the, the, uh, the odor of the sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. And what happens is when he comes in that veil, what did he see? He saw the ark. He saw the mercy seat on top of it. And what did he see on top of that? The glory of God. The very presence of the glory of God. And when he, when he walked into that place... The, the incense it was what covered him up. It veiled him, in a sense. It protected him. In other words, he went in there not in his own merit. He went in there not on his own, in his own person. He went in there covered up with the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? And there with the blood and sprinkles that blood. And he goes out again and he comes in the same way. And I say all that, brethren, because it's so important. Jesus Christ entered in once and forever. <laughs> because the priest, even when he went in the second time, he had to go back out again, didn't he? And maybe that was the only time he ever got to go in. Who knows? I mean, he may have only got in one, one time and didn't live any longer than that. But some of them lived many years and got to go in many times and other ones less. But Jesus Christ didn't have to go in twice because he never had to offer up anything for himself. He went in on his own merit. He went in the beauty of his own person. He went in himself. And he walked right through that veil, walked right through that place, entered into the very presence of God to offer up for you and me himself as a sacrifice to God. And, you know, when we get there, we're going to have perfect bodies, aren't we? I'm looking forward to I'm going to have a good-looking body in heaven. I don't know about here, but I'm going to have a good-looking body in heaven, you know. So, but he went in, and his body forever, the Scripture says, because we see it there in the Gospels as he, in his glorified body, appears to the, the, the apostles. He's always going to have those holes in his hands and his feet and his side as an eternal reminder of the great love and the great sacrifice that he had for you and me. We won't have scars. You've got a scar now on your body? You won't have that anymore. Uh, you've got anything missing? You know, you, you won't have that anymore. Everything will be absolutely perfect. But he will constantly have that as a reminder to us of what it cost 
for you and me to be there forever with him in heaven. And so it says, we therefore, brethren, have boldness to enter into the holiest. We have the opportunity at any place, in any circumstance, at any moment, to do what the high priest could only do on one day out of the year. And that's enter into the very throne room of God, the very presence of God, and see him in all of his glory. To stand before him, to fall down in, in adoration and praise, to lay at his feet the requests of our hearts, the needs of our hearts, unburden ourselves. Isn't that a wonderful thing? When you, when you, when you, you know, when we, when we go to God and we say, this is what I need, this is what I, we unburden ourselves and it's over with. Don't think about it anymore. You know, that's what Philippians chapter 4 says. Don't be anxious. Just let your requests be known to God. I mean, not that he already know him, but what we do is really it's for ourselves. We unburden ourselves before him. Uh, we come there and we give him thanksgiving. We come there and just fellowship with him. Just have communion with him. But we have at any place, at any time, middle of the night, driving down the highway, um, at work, at home, anywhere we are. We can enter into the presence of God. And, and to have that great privilege, brethren, you know the sad thing about it is, if you're like me, we just don't avail ourselves of that privilege very often. I mean, how many times, I mean, here in Miami, I mean, I know I drive down here sometimes when I'm here, and praise God for Kansas, we don't have any cars in Kansas. We have very few. When I went out there, they said they had traffic, and that meant that they're on a four-lane highway, I mean, four lanes on each side, eight-lane highway, that means there was cars in almost every lane and going 65 miles an hour. That's what they meant was traffic, you know. They don't understand what traffic is, you know. You come down here and you sit. And, uh, but you all spend so much time in a vehicle. How many times do you turn the radio off and just talk to God? He's right there. How many times do you just meditate on the Word as you're driving down the highway? We'd probably all be better drivers if we meditated, you know? I, I just got through driving. I drove from Kansas to North Carolina and from North Carolina up to Maryland and uh, had some stuff I needed to take along the way, picking some stuff to take down to Honduras and Cuba down in, uh, up in North Carolina. But I was like 16 hours in the car one, uh, two days. And what a wonderful time of just fellowship with the Lord. You know, just me and Him. And just talking to him. I mean, I wasn't asking him anything. I was just talking to him. Just, just talking like talking to my wife when we drive down the road. You know, just fellowshipping with him. But we have that great privilege. Can you imagine if the high priest, if they would have said, listen, high priest, um, you can enter into the presence of the Lord once a month. Okay? Or once a week. Or once every day. How many times do you think he'd go in? I mean, he, once he saw that glory, you think he'd, he'd not want to go in the next day? Absolutely. I think the, the, as soon as he left that second time, it was like, I can't wait till next year. What a sight. The glory of God. But, brother, sometimes when we enter into the presence of the Lord, we don't see the glory of God. Because we got our, our hearts and our minds so focused on ourselves, on our own little selfish world that we live in, on our own little selfish needs. We don't get our eyes off ourselves. We're looking at me rather than looking at him. Rather than looking at him. And if we see him there in all of his glory, brethren, what a change is going to make in our lives. You know, when Moses was in the presence of the Lord, what happened? His face shone. He came out and his face was shining so bright, people didn't look at it. It was like, man. So he veiled it. And he veiled it for two reasons. First reason he veiled it was it's so bright that it, people couldn't look at his face. But the second reason is the longer he was out of the presence of the Lord, that, veil, that glory, that, that brightness faded. 
You know, it's the same thing for us, brethren. When, we're, when we enter into the presence of the Lord, you can tell somebody that fellowships with God. You can tell somebody has a regular, ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because they're shining, they're glorying, you know. And then when, when somebody, you know, when you, when you spend time away from the Lord, that diminishes and diminishes. And finally, sometimes it's, it's not even there at all. It's not there at all. And so but I just want to encourage you. I mean, we're going to see three things here, three commands that the Lord gives us in regard to this. This great entrance that we have into the presence of God. Three things that ought to cause us to do. But just one last thing before we get into those. That's verses uh, 22, uh, 23, and 25. I mean, excuse me, 24. <clears throat> it says, we enter in by a new and living way. A new and living way. You know, that the old way, it was, it was a dead way, wasn't it? An animal had to die. Blood had to be. But you know what? Jesus Christ died, absolutely, no doubt about that. But he's also rose again, and he's living. And it's not a dead way, it's a living way. A new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us. He, he's the one that set it up. He's the one that established it. He's the one that inaugurated it, that opened it up. He's the one that, that made the way. He was the firstborn from among the dead. The first one to enter the presence of God and, and, and go there and open the way for you and me. Again, when the high priest went in, he had to go by himself. Couldn't take anybody with him. Couldn't take his son with him. Couldn't say, listen, son, I know I'm getting ready to die, and I want to show you how to do this. So let's go in together so I can show you how all this works. He couldn't do that. Just one at a time could go in. But Jesus Christ didn't go in alone, did he? (laughs) He's taking us all and presents us before his Father. Here's the children that you gave me. Here they are, every one of them. I didn't leave one behind. Here they all are. And so he enters a new and living way through the veil, which is, say, his flesh. Now, you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ died, several things happened simultaneously. One of the things that happened was all the graves opened up in Jerusalem of the saints. But it's interesting. If you note, the graves opened up, but they stayed open for three days. Nobody came out until after the resurrection of Jesus. Then the saints rose. He was the first risen, wasn't he? The other thing that happened at that time, there was that darkness and the the thundering and the, the, the massive um, you know, earthquake that took place. But then also the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. Now, you've got to realize this was the first day of, after the, the, the Passover, and this was the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. So the, it, and it was a time of the evening sacrifice. So that, that temple there was filled. The priests were there. They were ministering. They were taking care of the candlestick. They were taking care of the incense. They were taking care of the, the offerings. And that veil, can you imagine what that noise that veil made when it ripped from top to bottom? It's like the Lord took the tomb. When he opened the tomb, he opened the, 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 the stone he took away from the mouth of the tomb. And the question is, why did he do that? Why did he take away the stone from the mouth? Because he didn't take the stone away so Jesus could get out of the tomb. Jesus was already gone. So why do you open up the tomb? Why do you open up the veil? We open up the tomb so that Mary and Peter and John could go in and see he wasn't there anymore. <laughs> That's why I opened it up. One so he could get out so they could get in. And the other thing that God did when he opened up the veil, you know, those priests were standing there. The first time many of them had ever looked inside the Holy of Holies. What did they see inside there? They saw the ark and they saw the mercy seat. But the glory was gone. Ichabod. The glory had departed. That's why God opened up the veil. So they could see there was nothing there. He wasn't there anymore. 
But brethren, in the Lord Jesus Christ, His veil, that flesh, that, that which veiled His glory. I'll tell you, when, when people say that Jesus, in some way or another, um, became less of God when He came down, it says, it, it gives the idea that He set aside His glory, but He didn't set aside anything. He covered it up. He was just as much God when He was on this earth as He was in heaven before He ever came here. He was just as much God when He hung up on a cross. He was just as much as holy and righteous and perfect. Even when He bore our sins, He bore them, but He never was at all defiled by them. He never was influenced by them. They never had anything to do with Him. He was still God even as He died on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? <laughs> he veiled it. Why did He veil it? Well, if He wouldn't have veiled it, every man He came in contact with would have died. Nobody could see the glory of God and live. Even Moses, when he said, God, let me see your glory, he said, you can't see it. I'll let you see the hinder part of it, you know. And so God passed by, put his hand, kept Moses there in the rock, covered it up, got by, and all he saw was the trail in. And even that made his face shine. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's almost like Jesus pulled the veil back just a little bit of his flesh, just a tiny little bit, and kind of gave him a glimpse, didn't he? As we told him he was going to do, gave him a little glimpse. And even that <laughs> caused him to fall down before him. And then when John in, in chapter 1 of Revelation saw him, <laughs> he fell down like a dead man. Brother, you know, they sing songs about what are you going to do? When you get, uh, brother, there ain't no doubt in my mind what I'm going to do when I see the Lord Jesus. I'm going to fall down like a dead man in front of him. That's what I'm going to do. And if John, who laid his head on his breast at the Last Supper, fell down like a dead man when he saw him in his glory, what are you and I going to do? So <laughs> the only thing we can do, fall down in recognition. And adoration of the one who is God himself. <laughs> and made himself a man. So John said, we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what he did. So he says, because, of, because we have this entrance, because we have this access, at any place, at any time, in any circumstance, doesn't matter what's going on, God is never too busy, He's never too tired, He's never on vacation, He's never to the point that He doesn't want... Let me tell you, brother, God wants to have fellowship with you far more than you'll ever want to have fellowship with Him. What did it cost you to have fellowship with God? It didn't cost us anything. But it cost Him, His Son, to have fellowship with you and me. He paid a great price for us. And so he says to us, we have this entrance. So he says there's three things. Let us. First of all, let us draw near with a true heart. The psalmist says, who can enter into the presence of God? Who can enter into his sanctuary? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, his life is one that is clean, that is holy. But also not just as the outside, because it's easy. You can, you can put on a facade. You can put on uh, the appearance of being holy and righteous. The Pharisees did. They were hypocrites. They, they, they gave an appearance of one thing, and the reality was something else. But he says also a pure heart. A clean, pure heart. When he talks about Jesus, when he says that he was meek and humble, he didn't say I'm meek and humble. Only he said, I'm meek and lowly, humble of heart. God didn't look on the outward appearance. He, 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 the outward appearance is important. I mean, don't, we can't deny it is important. They say you can't tell a book by his cover. You certainly can't tell a book by his cover. You show me a Playboy magazine, I know exactly what's in it, right? No doubt about it. And brother, what's on the inside is what comes on the outside, right? He says, he says 
uh, what's in the abundant, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes out. You know, the fruit by the fruit you're going to know them. That's what he tells us. But the, the most important thing for us all, brethren, to work on isn't the outward thing. That's what the Pharisees, they washed the outside of the cup, but they forgot about the inside. The most important thing is to work on the heart, is to allow our hearts to be changed, to be moved by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, to be washed and cleansed by it. And if our hearts are pure, our lives are going to be pure. Our lives are going to be that which gives honor and glory to God. It's going to be in accordance with who He is and what He wants to do in our lives. So let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, God has made us a promise. We base it on God's word. We don't, we don't go out and say, well, God promised you this and God promised. If it's not based on God's word, what do you say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so we have, we have assurance. There's no doubt in our minds. We shouldn't ever, we shouldn't ever in any way question, does God love me? Does God hear me? I, I hear Christians all the time. You know, I pray to God and He does that. He doesn't hear. He hears everything you say. He's got a plan and a purpose. Just wait. Just wait. I hear young people, young guys come to me all the time. Man, I want to get married so bad. I tell them two things. Two things you want to get married. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. That's it. Pray and wait. God has His own time. If you're walking with Him, you're going to walk right into her. Right? Is that right, Brother Aaron? If you keep on walking in the will of God, you're going to bump into her. You don't have to worry about it. And same thing with girls. If you keep walking in the Lord, you're going to bump into Him. You don't have to go worrying about it. Huh. Let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You know, brethren, it says back in another part of this chapter, the Word of God cleansed our conscience. A believer should never have a guilty conscience. Never have a guilty conscience. Because the moment you realize that you've sinned, and the moment I realize you've sinned, you know what we need to do? We need to confess it. And God says, if you confess your sin, if you sincerely come before him and call sin what is sin, he, will, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you should always be conscious of your sinfulness. A different word. Never have a, a, a guilty conscience, but always be conscious of your, of your sinfulness. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I'll never be anything else. I'm saved by grace through faith right now. And a million years in eternity, aren't years in eternity, but I say that for our perspective, a million years in eternity, I'll still be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It'll never be about me. It's always going to be about him. Sprinkled, our hearts sprinkled, with the evil con- and our bodies washed with pure water. So let's draw near. In other words, let's... Avail ourselves of this wonderful access into the presence of God. Let's make it our conscious purpose in life, our our conscious uh, effort. Again, when we're working, when you're washing dishes at home, when you're when you're watching the kids, when you wake up in the middle of the night, when you're driving down the highway, fellowship with God. Fellowship with Him. We think, well, we no. I do it in the morning. I got that fifteen-minute devotion where I read the, our breaking, our, our, our break, what's it called? Our, our daily bread. We read that thing, and we we got this list where I'll check off three things, and fifteen minutes, I'm done. I've done my I've done my daily duty. I've done my little evangelical mass every day. You know, I go home and I'm done for the day. Brendan, it's a constant fellowship with Him. It's all throughout the day and all throughout the evening. Entering in. Second thing, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for it is faithful that promised. 
In other words, brethren, let, let's not be weary in well-doing. Let's not ever get discouraged. No matter what takes place in the political realm of this country, I'm just apolitical. I don't care anything about the politics, but if you are, that's fine. The politics, the morality of this country, brother, are we surprised that it's going downhill? I mean, are we really surprised that it's getting more wicked? Just read the scriptures. What does it say? <laughs> it's going to wax worse and worse. What does it say? In the days of Noah, what was the world like? God looked on the heart of man, and it was every thought of the man's heart was nothing but wicked continually. And what did he say? How's the end going to be? Just like in the days of Noah. Why are we surprised? We should be shocked if the world got better. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to, this real quick, it's kind of a part. i got three minutes. Okay, so, so, you know why God made Egypt so horrible and hard for the for the children of Israel right before they left so they'd want to get out so they'd want to get out but in this world where a bed of roses and everything is hunky-dory who want to go to heaven but it's horrible it's so wicked and horrible and ungodly and immoral let's go home that's why I'm, I'm ready to go I don't know about y'all I'm ready to go <laughs> And I'm glad God's making this world that way. He's letting it go. He's not making it, but he's letting it go that way, right? Romans chapter 1, he's letting it go that way. That's the way it's going to go. That's a natural thing uh, for the world to do. And so he says, let's hold fast to this, to this hope, the promise that we have. We're out of here soon. We're out of here at any moment. Today we're going to go. Today we're going to go. And then finally he says, let us consider one another. Now, that's such a beautiful thing. Because, brother, the natural heart of man is not to consider other people, it's to consider me. And I, and I share with people all the time, just, I just want to read it quickly, these two verses in Philippians. If we could just put into practice, not only as individuals, but as an assembly, these two verses, we turn the world upside down. We at least turn our assemblies upside down. Ephesians 2, verses 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other, everybody else, and that others in the plural, the others, as better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If we would just put that into practice, brethren, if we would just come to the means of assembly, not to get something out of it, but to give, to exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, to the benefit of others. You, know, you put that verse up there that your goal is to equip the saints. Well, that's why God's given, given the gifts. That we might equip the saints. Why? So the saints can do the work of the ministry. Why? So we all come to that full stature of a man. So every one of us becomes mature believers knowing the Word of God. Not just a head knowledge, but knowing the Word of God in a practical way so that we not only know it, but we live it. We practice it. And again, so that we become like Christ more and more. That's God's goal for every single one of us. He's put us like Christ positionally. Now what he wants in every one of us is to make us more like Christ, practically speaking. That's, that's his goal for every one of us. And so he says, um, let us consider one another. Let us think about everybody else. That word considers only three other times in the book of Hebrews. Two of those times directly speaks about the Lord Jesus as our apostle and high priest. It also talks about in chapter 12, consider him who, who suffered such great contradiction of, of sinners against himself, who, who gave, for the joy that was set before him, he, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The other place is, is talking about Melchizedek, but he's a, a type of Christ, considered such a one who even Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, etc. 
She says, consider. And that just means, it's like the breaking of bread. We don't come to remember the Lord Jesus. There's not a, per, there's not a scripture in the Bible that says, come to remember the Lord Jesus. How does he say, come in remembrance of me? Big difference. Because I, I, when I remember something, it's because I've forgotten it. But in remembrance of is just like the word consider. I focus my heart's attention on this thing. I, I focus in on it. I'm 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 one minded. I'm myopic. I don't look at anything or consider anything. I look at that thing, and that's what remembrance is. To re, in remembrance of the Lord Jesus, not remembrance of my sins, not remembrance of me, not remembrance of other people. It's just on the Lord Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. And so consider, focus your heart's attention on everybody else. Forget about yourself. Forget about your own selfish needs. Focus your attention on everybody else. That's what he's saying. Let us consider one another. And for what? To, to stir one another, not to criticize. You know, when you look at other people, the easiest thing to do is find all their faults and all their, their, the, the things in their lives that, that doesn't line up with, with what it should be. That's easy to do. Anybody can do that. Anybody can criticize. But brethren, there's not a scripture in the Bible that tells us to criticize. Now, a scripture in the Bible tells us to murmur and complain. Every time the children of Israel murmured and complained, what happened? God gave them an attaboy. You know, he patted them on the back and you're doing great, right? No, every time there was, there was a plague, there was death, there was destruction. Every time they murmured and complained. Brother, why do you think there's so many problems in the assemblies? Because we murmur and gripe and complain about everybody. We criticize everybody else. We're not here to criticize. That's what the world does. That's what these TV programs are about. You know, all these sitcoms, all of them are about making fun of other people and criticizing and pointing out all their flaws. And we sit there and laugh, ha, 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 laugh at that all the time. But you know what? It has an effect on us. Brother, what does he say? He says, consider one another to stir up each other, to esteem each other, to, to build one up, to edify. You know, it's easy to tear down. I can tear down that wall in no time at all. One day I can tear down that wall. But try to build it up. It takes a lot more to build up than to break down, doesn't it? But we're great at, build, at breaking down. We're horrible at building up. And he says, esteem one another. Provoke one another. Stir up. You know, when, when I'm, I'm on a little committee out in Kansas, we have a Bible study once a year, and, and Steve Price and Mike Atwood and Scott DeGroff and me and another brother out there, Glenn Tom. And we're going around the table. Steve Price, you know how he is, such a great organizer, you know. So he's saying, so what is your, what is your position? What, is your, what do you think your place on this committee is, you know? And I said, um, I said, um, um, what, I, what word did I use? Um, um Agitate. That's what I said. I'm here to agitate. And they all looked at me. Of course, they all know me. <laughs> That's probably right. Mark, are they here to agitate? But I said, brother, it's biblical. Agitate. Provoke. Stir up one another to love and good works. Man. Let's stir the pot a little bit. Right? Let's not just let it sit there. Let's stir it up. When you stir the pot, what happens? Things get moved around. Things get done. Let's stir each other up. What to what? To love and good works. To love the Lord Jesus first and foremost, and to love one another, and to love the lost. That's what he wants, and to good works. That's what we're here for, right? That's what he left us here for. He says he's got good works for prepared for every single one of us, and he wants us to walk in. Let's stir each other up to do good works for the glory of God. And then he says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, the habit of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more you see the day approaching. Brethren, 
we're, we're, we're there. I tell everybody, I know exactly the day Jesus Christ is coming back for the church. I don't have any idea what the date is, but I know the day. Today is, the day is today, right? Can't come back yesterday. That's done. Can't come back tomorrow. Tomorrow never gets here. It's today. Not, no idea what the date is. But the day's come back is today. And brethren, when Paul, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, whenever he wrote it, we're 2,000 years closer to the coming of Christ. That's the day he's talking about, the day approaching. He's talking about the rapture of the church. We're 2,000 years closer than when he wrote those words. We're right on the threshold. There's no doubt in my mind, brethren, that we are the generation of the rapture. We are the generation. We're going home soon. And we ought to be encouraging one another. That's what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, right? Or chapter 4, when he tells them about the rapture. And he says, stir up one another. Encourage one another with this thought, with this hope we have. We're out of here. We're out of here. So let's be encouraging one another till the end. Not discouraging. Not putting each other down. Not criticizing. But building each other up. Helping each other to move forward. And to rejoice in all these things. Habit of some is, well, you know, I'm going to stay home. And I'm just, a couple more minutes and I'll be done. A couple more, two minutes. Guys, I came a long way to get here, okay? Um, I only get, that's why they only let me speak like once every four or five years, you know, because they know. But, you know, the, the early church met for four reasons. The breaking of bread, fellowship, prayer, and the apostle doctrine. And, and the prayer meeting this night is the least attended, not just here, but Everywhere. Everywhere. In our assembly, about 80% of the people show up. we got about almost 200 there and over 100 or so show up on, 120 or so show up on, on, on Wednesday night. But I go to some meetings where they got 100 people on Sunday morning, 10 people are on, Sunday, on Wednesday night. There's some assemblies that have totally canceled Wednesday night because nobody comes. And so what we've done is we've taken one leg off the chair. Every, all these chairs have four legs. You know why? That's the most stable thing there is. Four chair, Four legs. And so I tell people, well, if you're not going to come to prayer meeting, what you need to do, go to your house and cut off one leg off all the chairs and then see what happens. You know what's going to happen? You're going to, you're going to fall over. That's the same thing with an assembly. When we put aside the prayer meeting, we've got too much else to do. We're too busy with school and with sports and with, with, with business. Brethren, we're losing, and we're, we're walking around here with a, with a broken chair with only three legs, and that's why we're falling. That's why we're falling. So, brother, encourage one another and gather together. We've got a few days left to do this. Let's gather together all the way to the end and run the race all the way to the end. That's what he wants us to do because we have such an access. And we've got it now just spiritually, but, brethren, someday, someday, so soon, we're going to have it actually, physically. We're going to enter in through that veil in the presence of the Lord Jesus. May God just bless and encourage you all so much. Thank you. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, for this wonderful, living, new way that we have in to your presence at any time. And we confess to you, Father, and we're ashamed of it. We don't avail ourselves of that entrance. We do when we have a problem, when we have a need, when there's some tragedy or, or great uh, event coming in our lives. But, Father, just on a daily basis, we just don't fellowship you, with you like we should. And we confess that and ask that you, by the stirring of your spirit, will give us more of a desire to do that. And not only individually, but assembly, uh, as an assembly, Father. And that we might come together not to criticize or to tear down, but we might come together to encourage and to build up and to equip the saints and, and encourage them into love and to good works, Father. That we might uh, do the work down here in the world that you have us to do, preparing for that wonderful day when Jesus Christ will call us up by name 
to be with him forever. Thank you. Thank you again for this assembly, for the dear brethren here, for the great privilege of being with them these days. And we just ask your blessing, not because we deserve it, but because of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you all so much.